I was coaching a match last weekend, and after the match was over, I got a text message from one of my classmates in the current U.S. Soccer Federation licensing course that I'm working on. And my friend uh, Danny Yargo sent me a message that went along these lines. One, I just found your podcast, and I really like it. And two, I used your promo code at DukeTigBrand to order a new notebook. So if you're not familiar with DukeTigBrand, go to DukeTigBrand.com, and upon checkout, use the promo code BROADWATER19. If you're a soccer coach or anyone in the soccer community, I absolutely swear by their product. If you need to organize your thoughts, your sessions, what you're going to do on match day, go to duketigbrand.com and upon checkout, use the promo code BROADWATER19. And Danny Argo, I hope you enjoy your new product. This is the On The Touchline podcast. I'm your host, Jason Broadwater. Welcome to the show. In Season 2, Episode 2 of the On the Touchline podcast, Aaron Rodgers and I talked to the head women's coach at the University of Florida, Becky Burley. And if you're not familiar with Becky's work, she is truly one of the legends in the game of soccer here collegiately. So few coaches can match Becky Burley's ability to bring a team ready to challenge for each season's conference and national titles on such a consistent basis. There's no question that Burley stunned the soccer community when the Florida program she started in 1995 claimed the 1998 NCAA crown in just its fourth season of play. But focusing on that obvious achievement doesn't give due credit to the job Burley does year in and year out as a tactician of the sport, developing players, and promoting the sport at local, state, and national levels. Those early successes have evolved into the Gator soccer team being a regular among the nation's top-ranked teams. Over the course of the program's 23 years, Florida has 21 NCAA championship berths, two NCAA college cup appearances, including winning the NCAA title in 1998, like I mentioned previously, 14 SEC team titles, and 12 SEC tournament titles. Without question, Becky has had some unbelievable success as the coach of the University of Florida. She's also coached U.S. women's national team greats like Heather Mitts and somebody by the name of Abby Wambach, two players that have made a significant impact on the game here in the U.S. As I mentioned in episode one of this season, some weeks you're going to get just me flying solo with a guest. Some weeks you'll get John Townsend and I uh, with a guest. And like I said, this week you're going to get Aaron Rodgers, who is the head women's soccer coach at Ohio University and actually worked under Becky in a previous position when he was at the University of Florida and also coached against her when he was at the University of Kentucky. I hope you enjoy episode two of season two of the On the Touchline podcast and our guest, 
Becky Burley, the head women's soccer coach at the University of Florida. Becky and Aaron, thank you so much for for taking time to be on the Touchline podcast. And um, it's a it's a real honor to have both of you on at the same time. And uh, we'll we'll get into how you're connected here shortly. But um, Becky, I think it's important for folks to know uh, you've been the only coach in uh, Florida women's soccer history. And uh, tell folks a little bit about your backstory. Um, that are not familiar with uh, with who you are and in your work at uh, University of Florida. Well, I do like to say I'm the best and the worst coach that Florida's ever had. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I actually came to Florida. I think it's been 25 years now, which is even crazy to think about. Um, and prior to that, I coached at Barry College in Rome, Georgia, which was NAI at the time. They're Division Three now, um, and coached there for five years. And then prior to that, I was in college. So I had a really unusual coaching path in that I started as a head coach at 21, came to Florida at 26, and have been here ever since. So it, it reminds me, um, and I am probably um, would venture to say you probably know this person, uh, that Nikki is O'Brown at oh, yeah. West Virginia. Uh, a very similar story um, that uh, she was a graduate assistant, started the program at West Virginia and has been there uh, ever since. And I guess I'm curious, um, you know, one, thinking back, what was it like starting a program and building something from scratch? Exhausting. <laughs> I'm glad I did it once, but I would never do it again. I mean, it is really exhausting. I mean, it's just, I think back to those days and I can remember specifically like Mondays were the worst because you had had like official visits all Saturday and Sunday and we didn't have any hosts because we didn't have a team. So it was like, it was like having company like 24 hours a day and it was exhausting, but, but it was really fun to do it, you know, to have your fingerprints on things from the beginning. That was really cool. But um, it was just seemed so overwhelming. I mean, there were some days where I would say, okay, like, what do I need to get done this week? And I'd be like, oh, that's way too big. What do I need to get done by Wednesday? What do I need to get done by lunch today? <laughs> and so I have to just break it down into really small segments. So uh, Aaron is uh, someone that has had uh, some experience working with you. And uh, Aaron, jump in and, and tell the folks a little bit how you and Becky uh, were able to get connected. Geez, I, I mean, I think... I met Becky and she may or may not remember this. Uh, when I first started coaching, probably at 23 years old. And I think um, I met Becky through Mark Francis, who knew Alan Kirkup, who's great friends and obviously works with Becky now. Um, and so she was always so kind and, and um, to me and uh, open to communicating with me. And I had lived in, uh, I was coaching and then I had gone out and, and went into the, the private business world, but I was part-time coaching that whole time in Florida. And I would always go and part of my territory was Gainesville. And I was lucky enough to, to have known Becky and I would stop by her office maybe I don't know, once every six months and just chat and catch up and say hi. And, and uh, she knew I was still part-time coaching. And then at one point they needed a volunteer uh, assistant coach. And um, she asked if I would do it. And it didn't take very long for me because at that point I knew that I wanted to, to transition back into full-time coaching. And it didn't take long uh, to say, accept that opportunity. And um, it was a, 
it was a, a changing opportunity and it was a wonderful opportunity to to get to work in Becky's uh, staff and in her world and and with that wonderful uh, staff and, and program that she has there at, at Florida. So I think I'm correct in saying that you've uh, obviously you've worked together, but you've coached against each other. We yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess when I was at, at Kentucky, um, we definitely did. And uh, that was that was always something that was was uh, bittersweet for me because I have such an affinity for Becky and the staff there, but also having a job to do at, at Kentucky. And um, that was we, we got to beat them one time. And that was gosh, that was probably like any school that beats Florida. It's like a highlight of their career or their their season. And it was a, such a big thing for the Kentucky program at the time. Um, so, yeah, we, we did. So I, I'm curious, uh, Becky, uh, we, we all have a, a, I guess, a reason why we do this, right? Um, I, I know why I like coaching youth players. Uh, but for you, wh- what is your why? Uh, why do you uh, continue to uh, to want to coach? Well, I, I feel like uh, my coaches that I had throughout my life um, really made a huge impact on me. I moved from Massachusetts to Florida when I was 10, and I had never played organized sports prior to moving to Florida. And I got to luckily move right across the street from a soccer field. And so my first coach was um, the mom and dad of a player on my team. And then my high school coach was the mom of a player on our team. Uh, and then my college coach um, was somebody that, you know, was the first full-time coach I'd ever seen. And I knew I wanted to coach, but um, my parents didn't think that was a very wise career choice because they're like, that's not a real job. Um, and so I just kept having all these coaches in my life who made such a big impact. And, you know, I really thought at one point I wanted to be a teacher, but then coaching seemed to be like teaching magnified. And so that's why I chose to go that route. What would have been, I guess you could say, some of the most rewarding experiences? I mean, you've had a significant amount of success, national championship. um, You know, obviously you've done very well in the SEC, NCAA tournament. um, I don't know if there's maybe two or three sort of, you know, career highlights that you would pick out. um, Folks that have played on the women's national team, you know, won World Cups. um, is there anything, you know, in your career that sort of jumps out to you? Well, it is definitely cool to see people who succeed at the next level in soccer. Um, and there's no doubt about it. Like it's really fun to follow the teams that they play on, um, whether it's the national team or professional teams. Um, but it's also like my, my most fun part of coaching is alumni weekend and getting to see everybody, you know, with their kids or uh, we've had a player who has um, had, the death of one of their children and just to see how she navigated that was like incredibly inspiring to me. Um, We've had people who have had really great things happen to them in their lives and really tough adversity. And I really feel like with the adversity side of it, you know, maybe playing on our team and going through the experiences they had at Florida maybe has some effect on them and their ability to manage those situations. And um, that to me is by far the most rewarding part. How have you, so uh, all of us as coaches uh, from the youth level uh, all the way up to division one professional level, um, we always talk about culture and 
you know, it, it, yes, it's a buzzword and a, a word that probably gets thrown a lot, uh, thrown around a lot. But, um, you know, I had asked Aaron this question when he uh, came on the show um, not that long ago. And I'm curious for you, what goes into shaping culture uh, of a program, of players individually, you know, bringing folks together from all over the country, all over the world to get a desirable result uh, as a coach? You know, that's, that is a really good question because it's such a, such a big word right now, buzzword. And I I feel like part of culture is just, um, you know, the way you treat people, the way, the things that you allow or the things that you don't allow. And, you know, some of that to me is, it's just like what, how you want to be treated in the world, forget sports, forget any of that. Um, You know, we treat each other with respect. We, yeah, we have our emotions that go with competing at a high level. Um, but that doesn't allow us to just fly off the handle or do something that's not socially acceptable. Um, and I think that when you get a culture rolling and you, there's an expectation of how people treat each other, that sort of just lives on with the people in your program. You know, I, I hope that if I do a good job, it's not really me driving the culture. It's the players driving the culture. I've always felt like our best teams have been the ones I've coached the least. Um, and I feel like it's hard because it's like the everyday part of it is what is kind of missed in culture. I think people think of culture as like, oh, we're going to go do this great team building activity or things like that. But it's more like what happens every single day. Um, and I feel like when coaches get burned out, it's not that they, you know, hate the sport or don't like it anymore. I think it's more that they just get tired of noticing and enforcing the little things every day, because that takes a lot more energy than people think. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I was going to say, it, it sort of reminds me, you know, we were joking about the, the fitness test before we got started, but, um, that, you know, if someone is looking for a magic bullet or sort of a magic, um, uh, you know, exercise in terms of their fitness as a player, they're probably not going to find it, right? It's a series of small, continuous, dedicated uh, type of events. Uh, People have to put the work in. You can't cut corners, I guess is what I'm saying. And I think culture, at least for me, I would compare it to that in the fact that it's really a series of small events. Um, you know, you mentioned sort of a team building activity or something like that. Yeah, that's important, no doubt. But that that is not the only thing a coach should do, in my mind, to shape the culture or to drive, uh, you know, what they want from their players. And, and Aaron, I think we may have talked about this too, of, you know, uh, player-centric versus coach-centric uh, type of culture. And, and maybe if you want to jump in there and, and maybe riff on that a little bit. Well, can I, I, I want to just kind of go back to what Becky had said about one of her, I guess, what she takes away the most from coaching is, is the alumni weekend. And I know that just being a part of, of her culture for a little while, that's such a massive part of, of what, what she has in that program. And I think people and players coming into that program, they see that love and that care that she has for not only the players that are there now, but the players that were there 25 years ago, and they want to be a part of that. And that's that daily culture building that she treats all these players with such care. And that program treats each player with such care that they truly want to be there and they want to thrive in that environment. And, you know, that's one of the biggest things that I wanted to interject to this conversation is my evolution as a coach really 
has taken so much from what I was able to gather from that program and the things that Becky is doing now with how to communicate and how to push players to be the best they can be. And it's not only just about soccer. It's not, can you create this wonderful training, um, training exercise? It's about how those players inter interact with each other, with, with the coaching staff and how they define themselves as people and, and not, soccer players and and i think that's so massive and it is it's everyday thing and just like when when um you have to you have to keep building it this process is always evolving and it's never stagnant and the moment it becomes stagnant is a difficult moment for you and so it's always always progress is always evolving and i think i think that's it to to make sure that the players know that they have such ownership of what they're doing with the guiding hands of the coaching staff, because we're facilitators. We're here to facilitate them to be the best that they can be. And, you know, one of the great, and I think Jason, you and I talked about this is one of the, the most impressive things about Becky and all the things that, that she has accomplished in her career. She is one of the most humble coaches I've ever been around as, and gives so much authority to the staff that she has working with her, that they all feel that ownership of that mentorship. And I, I can't, I don't think that can be um, spoken highly enough of because the players see that as well. And they recognize that she's willing to give to those that are willing to be the best that they can be and have the best interest of the program, not themselves in the forefront of their mind. Thanks, Aaron. <laughs> that was long. It was long, I know, but I, that's what I, I I gained so much from that, and and I think that's so important. In in especially, it's probably been important when John Wooden was coaching because of the things that he stood for, which was however many years ago. But it's probably even more important now in in 2019 and beyond, as as the players that we are coaching and mentoring have changed as well. So Becky, where does that come from for you? Um, you know, I would say for me as a, you know, as a, as a leader in my uh, nine to five job, but also as a, as a youth coach, as a husband, um, as a father that um, I would say largely shaped by life experiences that, um, you know, treating people well is something that not only I value, um, you know, sort of uh, the, the golden rule, right? Treat others how you would like to be treated. But I'm, I'm curious for you. Um, I mean, Aaron said it, I think, very eloquently there of, um, you know, that really empowering people. And uh, I, I guess I'm curious as to how you got to that place in your coaching career. Well, I would probably say, you know, my parents had a lot to do with that just in the sense of the way they raised me. I had a kind of a unique situation because uh, my mom was um, handicapped most of her life. She was in a wheelchair most of her adult life. And so just always being in a situation where I would see her positivity. And then my dad took care of my mom most of his adult life. Um, and that was a lot. Like she needed a lot of care and just the respect of seeing him do that every day, plus have a regular full-time job. And it put a lot on us as kids early on to be independent and to take care of ourselves. Um, and that was something that was really valued in our family was, you know, being able to handle your business basically. And I think then like when I went to college, um, first of all, just even getting to college, my youth and high school coach 
played a huge role in that. I mean, I wasn't that highly recruited. Um, where I went to school at Methodist, uh, my coach, he really wanted my best friend and um, my high school coach's daughter. And he was like, well, if you can get them to come, then you can come too. <laughs> and um, I did get them to come. It was my first recruiting job, I think. Um, <laughs> unfortunately for him, they left early and I stayed all four years. <laughs> but, um, but then he was such a, like him, he and his wife, uh, Joe Pereira and Teresa Pereira, really important people to me um in my life because all through college you know they really helped me i mean i pretty much paid my way through college and they helped facilitate that with helping me get jobs um you know feeding me dinner in the summer and stuff like that like just little things where you could see and feel the investment that they had in you as a person and so i think i just felt like that's what coaches did because all my coaches did that to me. Um, so it was sort of just a pay it forward. So uh, I, I think I asked Aaron this question and uh, I'll ask you this question, Becky. Um, wh- what were you like as a player? <laughs> uh, well, um, I was big and slow, um, <laughs> but I, I really, so in high school I was a uh, forward, um, and I, I did spend a lot of time practicing uh, because I live right across the street from the soccer field. So I really loved playing and I was always playing pickup. Like I literally spent every weekend at the soccer field. Um, and so I had this love for the game. It just didn't match my talent level, unfortunately. <laughs> so as I went to college, my coach like started me as a forward and I moved back in the midfield Then I moved back. It was the sweeper stopper day. So I was at stopper because I could have someone fast behind me. And then in my senior year, I ended up having to play in goal through a series of unfortunate circumstances. <laughs> um, so I feel like my playing days prepared me for coaching because I just played everything and did the best I could with what I had. <laughs> so uh, knowing that you're in a, uh, you know, a, a high stress uh, type of position, um, you know, constantly evaluated, um, how do you take care of yourself as a coach? Um, I, I don't have a problem with that. Like I know a lot of people talk about work-life integration and things like that. Like for me, first of all, I really enjoy um, the people at work and not just my staff, but we're in a building with multiple coaches and multiple staffs. And so it's really fun to come to work here because everybody is pretty high energy and pretty um, interesting. And, you know, I just find the watching the other teams really fascinating. Um, so that part is easy. And then when I'm not at work, I feel like I'm not at work. Like I don't, I don't have a conflict over being in two places at one time. I, I, I work, you know, pretty consistent days. When I get home at night, I have dinner and I spend time at home with people at home, but I don't feel like, um, you know, I'm always in the back of my mind nagging. And then when I get to work the next day, I'm fully engaged in work. And, you know, I do like to travel. I do like to play tennis and, and do other things. Um, and you have to, I think, make time for the things that make you feel more complete. So, you know, like I play tennis on Tuesday mornings in a league here in town and I can't do it in the fall because we train in the mornings, but in the spring, um, you know, it takes me pretty much, you know, from nine o'clock in the morning until noon we play. And that's a big chunk of time to give up, but I've scheduled around it and um, it's been really fun. You know, I've met a lot of people from the Gainesville community that I never would have met. And I think, um, okay, can I, can I probably do something constructive with those three hours in terms of soccer? Yeah. But 
I can also feel really refreshed and come back as a fresh coach to my team after doing that too. So I'm going to read a, a quote that uh, I saw that uh, I think you gave in, a, in another interview and uh, just curious um, kind of the thought process here. So I think burnout is when we stop wanting to learn the players and teams change over the years, and it is up to us to make sure that we continue to do as well. Plus the art of coaching is stealing great ideas from others and putting them into the structure you've created within your own team. And, um, I've seen that question uh, about burnout, um, you know, floating around on social media uh, from time to time with with fellow coaches. And, um, you know, I, I, I guess I would say sometimes it's folks may feel frustrated and not quite sure where to go. Um, sometimes they just need to give it time and kind of let it rest um, and then come back to it. Um, and, and revisit how to navigate the challenge. Um, it might be a new challenge for them as a coach that they've you know never experienced before. Uh, but I'm curious for both of you. Um, you know, Becky, you started a program, and uh, when I had talked to Nikki Azo Brown, you know, the one thing she had said to me is, "Man, and I would never do that again." <laughs> just knowing we're smart, me and Nikki. <laughs> uh, just knowing how much mental and physical energy. Uh, you know, went into building something from the ground up. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm curious that the burnout factor, right? Um, uh, and, and same for you, Aaron, that uh, how do you avoid that? And you touched on that a little bit about having some things, you know, away from the game, you know, like tennis or traveling or family or, or whatnot. But, um, you know, how do you stay fresh as a coach? Well, that, that is easy for me. It's just the learning part. You know, I am, I'm always fascinated to watch the seasons go by of other sports at Florida. Cause I get like this front row feet to it. Um, and I, our, our coaches here have a really good relationship. We talk a lot. We have a monthly collaboration and we all talk in between that. Um, but I think it's not just coaches at Florida, you know, like I use, I use social media as like an educational platform for myself. Like I love, you know, listening to, I think everybody I follow is like another coach probably. Um, and just listening to what people do because we're all coaching people and that's all the same stuff. Yeah. Our X's and O's are different, but the issues we have are very similar. And, um, that's the beauty I think of coaching is that if I was just focusing on the X's and O's, I probably would have been bored or burned out by now. But when the people change so much, um, and like Aaron mentioned, you know, like even just the the generation, when I think of a soccer generation, it's not like 20 years, it's like 10 years, five years, like players are different five years ago than they are now. And how do we continue to keep up with that and reinvent ourselves and not feel like, well, back in my day, we did this. I don't want to sound like my parents. <laughs> so uh, like that part um, is fascinating to me and it keeps me really interested. I, I think uh, we, we can all relate to the saying that, uh, you know, we walked uphill both ways, the, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, snows up to the telephone poles and, uh, you know, you don't know how good you have it uh, sort of thing. Right. Um, Aaron, I'm curious for you uh, about the, the burnout factor. Well, I think I think I could look at it in two ways. Number one, um, as, as Becky mentioned, I think so much of the burnout is not because of 
of losing love in soccer or um, passion for the game. It's, it's the little minutia that you have to deal with on a daily basis. And, and how can you compartmentalize that and, and, and take it for what it's worth? And how can you um, preserve yourself with those things outside of the, the, the sport or outside, not necessarily sport. Cause I love watching Liverpool play and I watch them as a fan, not as a student of the game. I, I, that, that's my release, you know, and um, and so those are the things that you have to remove yourself from um, the Ohio University women's soccer program for a short period of the Florida women's soccer program. So you can you can re-energize yourself. And, you know, and, and one of the things on, on a second level is that I've I've really, really kind of delved into. And again, I think I would put this all down to the the the. Um, uh, mentorship of, of Becky and that staff there is of not so much just the X's and O's, but of the mental side of it. And, and, and how can we evolve and adapt with these players? And, you know, when I, I think Jason and you and I talked about the first time is that I've evolved and we all evolve as a coach. And if we're not evolving, then we're going to be left behind. But my focus on solely winning with when I got here and that word winning, it wasn't my heart that they were seeing. They were hearing the word win. And my heart was always care, but my word was always win. And so when I replaced that with care and pushing themselves to be the best version of themselves and things like that, it, it started to change. And in order to do that, you have to surround yourself with good people, with good staff, because you can't do everything yourself. And as you do everything yourself, it becomes you can become burnt out. And one again, going back to the model that Becky has set up, she has such a brilliant staff that really complements each other. And I have been around a lot of staffs, and I know there are a lot of great staffs out there that I know a lot of different coaches, but it is one of the most um, special staffs because of how they each complement each other. And I don't think you can be successful without that. And that's something that I learned in, in when I bring in coaches to work with me is can they do something that I can't do? And I'm okay with that. I'm okay saying, hey, I'm not very good at that or I'm not as good at that, but I'm really good at this. And can I find somebody that does that? And not to feel slighted because maybe they're better than that than me. Well, I'm the head coach. I should do everything really well. That's not realistic. That's not real life. And so in order to do that, I can save myself some burnout because I'm not putting all that pressure on myself and I'm allowing other people to join me in this journey to have that ownership as well. And so I think that's important. And, I, and again, I think a lot of that comes from seeing how Becky has organized that staff there at, at UF. So Becky, I've asked this question to... Um a few other, uh, high level, um, women's coaches. And, uh, I'm curious of your take. Uh, so I come from the generation of, uh, the Abby Wambox of the world that are, uh, tough as nails, um, would probably run through the wall. And, um, you know, I mean, just, she's a player that I have uh, so much admiration for. And, uh, to know, to know that today's player, is probably a little bit different. Not to say they're not as tough, not to say that they're not as skilled um, in terms of you know technical or tactical abilities or, or whatnot. Um, but I've even seen this in the youth game that um, what players need 
has changed in my time coaching uh, at the youth level. And uh, there definitely seems to be a, a whole lot more handholding uh, that goes on um, in the fact that, um, you know, I, I can say there's a, a ton of parental involvement uh, at the academy level that I coach at now. Um, obviously, that probably looks a little bit different with a Division One program, but probably not completely out of the picture. And I'm curious over your time um, in coaching that how have you seen athletes and what their needs are? How that how's that changed? Well, um, that's a, that's a deep question. I, I feel like, um, there's always change, you know, team to team fall to spring. Like, I mean, it's, it's constant. Um, and I think, you know, when I first got into coaching, I thought, okay, like, I'm just going to find like a formula and that's going to work, but it didn't work because the people weren't the same. And so trying to figure out like the specific needs of each team, I think over time it, you know, the, it is different. Like parenting is a little different now than it was in the past. Um, that clearly translates into the kids you get are a little bit different, but it's, I don't think it's necessarily better or worse. Like I don't, I don't judge it one way or the other. I just you know that I need to be aware of it. Like right now, my, um, my real quest is I feel like the secret to coaching this generation of players lies somewhere in social media, which I know sounds crazy. <laughs> but I think that, you know, we have to take into account that, you know, kids that are like 18, 19 years old, like they've had social media their entire life, their entire life. I didn't have social media until, you know, recently. And so how do I relate to the fact that them being judged or them needing other approval is really important because they've grown up with that their entire life. Like, I think I have to figure out like, how do I integrate that into the way that I coach? Um, and again, not, not judge it and think like, well, they shouldn't need that. Or my way was better when I was younger. Um, we, we could, we could debate that, but it doesn't really help the reality of the fact that they have grown up in this era and we need to, uh, if we're trying to get the best out of them, we need to figure that out. Aaron, for you. Man, I, I tell you, I, I kind of started, my mind started going when Becky said you know, <laughs> the social media. And I'm thinking, how can we do that at, at, at training? And, um, and how can we create that? Um, but again, I mean, it is, it's, it's always evolving. And, and how do we how do we communicate with these players on their level yet still push them to be their very best? Because again, we're still in a business that, yes, I, I say, I don't want to use the word win, but ultimately that's our goal. We want to win. We all want to win. We're competitive. We want to win these games, but how do we, what, what's the roadmap to get to that win? And that's something that is totally different today than it was five years ago, 10 years ago. I mean, it is weird to see that you talk, you go recruiting or you go and talk to other coaches and they're like, gosh, you know, five years ago was so different than it is now. And 10 years ago was so different than it is now. And, and so we have to accept that and figure out what that roadmap is to that, to that ultimate goal of winning. And I think it is, it's so much down to, I think coaches in the past, they might've yelled at you and Bear Bryant. 
I'm sure he cared about those guys, even though he was screaming at them the whole time and was very transactional in his, his leadership style. But I'm sure he cared about them. But that was that that's what was then. You know, now we have to be far more transformational in the way we communicate, because this group, as Becky said, they're con- constantly looking for that little red heart on their twitter or their instagram and 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 i listen we get caught up with it too and we put a group me out because we have the little group me for our team and we put a group me out we put a little statement out there or a motivational statement i'm immediately looking how many people liked it how many people liked it does the team not think i know what i'm talking about now because they're not all liking it (laughs) and so so it is it's so true and so that really got me thinking man how do we how do we capture that in a coaching presentation and again this is what i love about coaching and this is what i love about today and becky and in today's this era is this isn't even we're not even talking about how to break down a 442 or how to break down a, you know a three five whatever it is we're talking about how to reach people and how to best motivate people and i think that's that's the exciting part um for me that we get to do it with our passion and love of this beautiful game of soccer that brings everybody together I remember uh, being at a tournament with my team uh, last fall in Columbus, Ohio, and uh, the the boys are sitting around, sitting around the breakfast table, and they're all looking at an iPad, and uh, my coaching partner and I are just sort of laughing and going, wow, uh, you know, I wish they had that when we were players, and um, I agree with everything that you both said, that it is this, you know, constant evolution, and, um, you know, I, I guess I would call it a moving target. And the fact that, um, you know, if you think you've reached the top of the mountain, you really haven't for the fact that something's going to change and evolve. And, and Becky, to your point that I agree, I mean, social media didn't exist when I was an undergraduate, you know, it didn't exist when any of us were in college probably. Right. So the fact that, you know, it is now, uh, in the, the fabric and the DNA of players. So we, we have two choices, right? We can choose to ignore it and sort of say, you know, my way or the highway, or we can adapt and say, you know what, uh, this is a part of who they are. I'm going to embrace this, um, you know, to, to the best of my ability. And uh, yeah, absolutely, Aaron, I, I'm with you. I mean, I'm always, you know, looking at, uh, did, did someone retweet that or did uh, who liked that or, or, you know, or whatever. And uh, it's, a, it's a really, I think, fascinating world to live in for the fact of how do you juggle that as a person, right? Not even as a coach, but as a person of this sort of need for validation. Um, you know, and I guess I'm getting into the sort of the sports psychology of it a little bit, but um, yeah, I think probably the modern player, you know, is craving that. And I'm curious, I mean, you know, in 10 years, I mean, what's it going to be like, you know, probably some virtual reality thing or, <laughs> you know, there'll probably be like a clone on the field or something like that, or some, <laughs> you know, hologram or something like that, that we'll all, uh, we'll all be coaching. So, um, Becky, you've uh, d- done some work with uh, Brett Ledbetter and, uh, you know, what drives winning. And I guess I'm wondering, um, coaches outside of soccer, right? That is quite a, um, just a, a highly decorated group of coaches that you have been with um, to, to be a part of that series. And I, I'm curious, out of that group or, um, you know, other coaches in other sports, who, who do you admire? And, and Aaron, you can chime in as well of, you know, you've mentioned John Wooden and, um, you know, Bear Bryant and, and folks like that, but who outside of soccer do you look to to say, whoa, like he or she really gets it? 
Well, that's a, there's so many to pick from. <laughs> I mean, that's a tough one because um, we've had some great coaches as part of what drives winning. Um, you know, I do think that uh, someone, I think it was, might've been Bill Bezik who said something about the next generation coach is going to be able to be demanding and kind at the same time. Like that's really hard. Like that's an amazing statement to think about, but it's a lot harder to execute, I think. Um, but I think there, you see examples of that. Like I love Steve Kerr who has not yet been involved with what drives winning. Maybe he'll listen to this podcast and hear me and say, Hey, we want you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but Brad Stevens from the, the Celtics, you know, um, Mike Gundy from Oklahoma state football, like the, the way that he is so structured, but yet at the same time, like incorporates a lot of fun and autonomy in what he's doing. PJ Fleck up at Minnesota football, like, He's he's a I consider like a really good modern day coach. Um, I don't know. There's just there are so many. There really are, and it's fun to just see how people are doing it. And you know, I do feel like I love to steal other people's ideas, but I can only steal the ones that fit me. Um, and I think that that's always the challenge. Is like, okay, how could I? do that in my environment or would that work in my environment and sometimes I find myself looking at coaches who are nothing like me at all and then I want to use some of their stuff and I have to figure out a way to make that work for me because it's great information but maybe I don't have the same delivery as another coach Um, so I think there's so much to learn from other coaches as long as you you know that you have to still stay authentic to yourself Aaron, how about for you? Well, I mean, again, as Becky said, there's so many, and I, I try to just absorb everything I can, any everywhere. And you know, I've I've been involved with with Becky and Brett in the What Drives Winning, and and in their most recent book that's just come out. Um, you know, she, she talked about Oklahoma State and Mike Gundy, but the golf coach at at Oklahoma State, Mike Holder, he he has a section in the newest book, and one of the things that I really it's so simplistic, but it it really hit home to me is he 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 wanted his players to do they find joy in coming to training every day? Do they find joy in the preparation for training? And do they have somebody there that can help them find that and 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 embrace that? And I, I thought, man, that's so simplistic, but goes so far because we do play a sport and a game at the end of the day and if you don't enjoy it if you don't find that joy then it's not really worth doing and so you know just to find those nuggets from so many different people and that's a golf coach right there I mean golf and soccer are on totally ends of spectrum as it relates to sport but that knowledge and that piece can be can be taken and 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 I think just being able to listen to to other coaches here at, at Ohio University or at, at UK or wherever else, or at Florida, wherever else I've had the opportunity to work and uh, around some brilliant coaches. Um, it, it is just, uh, um, it's very difficult to pinpoint one person because everybody that, everybody that can find, you can find some value in everybody's method. Well, uh, Becky, a shout out to uh, someone, a part of your team that uh, Sarah Loudon is uh, one of the folks who got me turned on to what drives winning. So um, Mm -hmm. she and I have been able to uh, get connected via social media and uh, 
have followed along, you know, each other's uh, journey uh, thus far, and um, she's going to do some big things in our game for for sure. So we've we've talked about winning, uh, but what about failure? And you know, uh, we we probably see these quotes every you know often, uh, and I know I've shared some of them on social media about um, you know we have to get okay with the idea of failure, and that failure is something that is really necessary for all of us as coaches. And um, I guess I'm curious for both of you uh, that describe, you know, a, a moment of failure or instances of failure, but how that has made you a better coach or a better person or, you know, how, how it sort of elevated your team um, in terms of where you're trying to get them uh, collectively. Well, I mean, last year was, was great and horrible all at once. Um, you know, it was the worst season we've ever had at Florida, but I tell people, um, after having survived it, that I wouldn't necessarily sign up for that by choice, but I do feel like everybody should go through a season like that at least once. Um, and I think the reason I think that is because you just learn so much about yourself. You learn so much about the people around you. Um, and what I found myself um, really pushing myself to do was, will I be the person I want to be in that situation? You know, will I still stick to what I want to be like? Um, Billy Donovan, who was the basketball coach at Florida, now at Oklahoma City, um, he, he has a little clip that we have for What Drives Winning, and it like echoed in my head all season last year. And it was, he says, um, is that who you want to be? And if it's not, why are you acting like that? And so you know, we have like, for example, a kids club after games um, that aren't on school nights. And I remember one game in particular, the message we were doing that night for the kids was resilience. And I, we lost and I'm like, I do not feel very resilient right now. <laughs> um, but like then having to get up and deliver that message to those kids was it's really important. Um, and then I also feel like that losing season last year was really helpful in, you know, like giving myself credit for going all in on every game, um, not knowing if we we're going to win or lose, but like not backing off of like not backing out of it a little bit saying, well, you know, I'm going to prepare myself in case we lose. No, I'm like total optimist. I'm like, we're going to win this game. We're going to get on a run here. We're going to make it into the NCAA tournament. Like I was just all in every game. The hard part about that is like you get heartbroken every time when you lose. Um, but I was really happy that um, I didn't feel like we lost the locker room. And I personally felt like I um, pushed myself hard to stay all in the whole time, even though it was painful. Aaron, how about for you? Well, as a vulnerable person that I am, I, I, I'm, I get too emotionally invested in failure. <laughs> so I'm, I, that's just me as a human. I, I, I struggle with that big time and I hold on to it probably a lot more than I should. And so just as a, as a personal growth thing, um, the less I can hold on to that and take what I can learn out of it instead of attaching myself emotionally to the failure and maybe structurally to the failure of why it happened and what can I do to get better. But as you know, me being just uh, vulnerable and saying that I hold on to it emotionally too long. And so probably the biggest thing for me as a person is how do I evolve and how have I evolved to not 
to not to be attached emotionally to it, but attach myself to it structurally on how can I make it better? How can I do things differently? And I will tell you, you know, being I was a head coach at the first time at 40 years old um, and it was here at, at this job at Ohio. And um, it was it has been there have been some really low points um, thinking that whatever you've done in the past and whatever programs that you've been a part of in the past, it's just going to naturally transition and it doesn't work that way. And as every situation is different, every program is different, um, you know, going through some pretty tough times here, not getting the results or not having the effect on the players that I thought I would. Um, that, that was hard for me emotionally. And, um, and so, but I think it's, it's grown me to another place in a better place. And, and now that I look in, if I were to ever leave here and go undertake another job, I have a totally different perspective and I know that I would be able to uh, approach it in a totally more um, consistent way. And, uh, and I think, so I know that I've been able to learn those kind of things through, through failure, but gosh, I mean, if you're in sport, you're going to have, you know, a lot of failure and I played goalkeeper too. So I gave up a lot of goals in my life too. And so that's failure too. And I didn't have, a, I had a hard time dealing with all those as well. <laughs> Well, I think it's easy maybe for a casual fan or a parent or heck, maybe even a player um, that so w winning drives a lot of why, you know, we do this, right? Um, we want to win matches. We want to win uh, championships. We want to be successful, I guess is what I'm saying. But I think that um, the, the, the failure piece, it teaches us so much about ourselves not only as people, but as coaches. And, you know, I had an experience here in the last six months where it really stretched me as a coach. And the fact that um, I, looking back on it, I'm thankful it happened because, you know, when you're in the moment, you don't realize that you're sort of have the tools and the abilities to deal with it. But, you know, now having had a chance to reflect on it, I'm glad it happened because it, it has definitely changed my perspective. And I think things that you both said of, uh, you know, uh, the emotion, uh, emotional attachment, um, you know, to it. I mean, it's really, really tough. Uh, so that, that probably leads into anyone can look at a win loss record, right? Anyone can do a Google search of, uh, uh of your names and, and look at, you know, uh, records and, and things of that, but how do you define success within your program? Ooh, now we're getting really deep here. <laughs> <laughs> Whew. I mean, you know, like the, the thing I think you got to think about is um, how the public so defines success and how your administration might define success, like how basically society defines success may be different than how you define success. And ultimately, uh, we have to be competent at our job in order to keep it. Um, so that's just reality of what we do. So I think with that being said, um, after that, like how you define success personally, I think comes down to what your values are for yourself and for your team. Um, and I think it's really hard because the ideal situation is that you have the society success at the same time that you have your personal value success. I think where people get out of alignment is when 
you know, maybe they have the society success, but they are out of alignment with their own values, or maybe um, they don't have any success on the scorecard, but they have their values. Like, well, at some point you've got to show something for it too. So it, it's really challenging, I think, to find what your sweet spot is. And I think that goes back to what I was saying before is like, how was I going to be in situations where we weren't being successful? How was I going to act? How was I, was I going to be the first person to get up off the bench and shake hands with the opposing team? Or was I going to pout? You know, was I going to start railing at the referees um, because of a bad call when that's not something I normally do, but maybe I'm doing it out of frustration because I'm losing. So for me, it's like, am I true to myself in both winning and losing? Um, Do our players leave our program more developed as both players and people four years after they get here? Am I a different coach for this year's freshman class than I am for three years from now's freshman class? Cause I've grown like, there's just so many ways that I think you can measure success in your program. Aaron. Wow. Um, I think Becky obviously is we're in the business of, of results. I mean, we don't play sport uh, to go. Oh, and 18. Um, and again, it goes probably back to that roadmap of, of how do we get to be 18 and 0 and not 0 and 18. Um, there has to be a level of competency again of, of as a X's and O's soccer coach or as a facilitator of, of a soccer team. Um, but beyond that, beyond that traditional uh, success of uh, societal views of success, you know, again, one of my missions is that when these ladies leave this program, are they going to be the best boss, the best employee, the best mother, the best, the best daughter, the best sister, the best wife, whatever they do, are they going to be the best that they can be at that? And hopefully because we are doing that in a student athlete setting that I want you to be the best student you can be. Well, not every student's a 4.0 student. So if their best is a 3.5, then I want them to be a 3.5 student. If their best is a 4.0, then that. And I want them to be their best. Not every player in our 28-player roster is going to start and play 21 games a season. But whatever role they have, are they going to embrace it? And are they going to be the best in that role, be it the player that does start every 21 games or the player that, that doesn't get to play that much? And are they embracing that? And, and can we create that environment? And, and hopefully, and my theory has been co- as evolving, hopefully when we do that, we do get more wins than we do losses. And then at that point, we are deemed a success on the field as we are a success off the field. And ultimately, you know, at, at Ohio University, we're not going to have very many uh, professionals leave here. Florida, different story. Uh, from Florida women's soccer, different story. You know, even though at University of Florida women's soccer, when they become professionals, unless you're Abby Wabak, you're not making a ton, a ton of money, you know. Um, so they still have something that they've got to, to understand. That they've got to do something outside of just playing. And so we don't have, you know, in my six years, we have had nobody go play professionally. So they're going off and being teachers and engineers and business people. And are they going to be the best at that? And so, you know, I think um, – Last year was our most successful year on paper, but I think over the six years I've been here, 
we've had a lot of success in people leaving here and becoming great citizens. And, and, and that's, I think that's ultimately uh, for me, what we want to do both of. So a, a question I, Becky, I asked Aaron this question when he, uh, he came on the podcast recently and I'll, I'll ask you the same question. Uh, so what's working and what's not working when it comes to soccer in the U S boy, is this being recorded? Um, I, I think, I think we have a very big challenge in this country because of the vastness of our geography. And that's really hard. Like, I think we underestimate it has its, its opportunities because we have such a huge player pool, but it also is a huge threat because how do you, how do you find the best players? How do you get all those players together? And, you know, I know like it's a favorite pastime of most college coaches is to sit on the sideline at recruiting events and criticize, you know, U.S. soccer or youth soccer or whatever. (laughs) To me, it's, it's just challenging. I mean, you know, we have so many different systems. We have U.S. soccer, we have the BA, we have ECNL and, and they're competing. And, you know, in general, you think competition helps, get us all to where we want to go. But at the same time, like there, it feels like a lot of division. So it almost feels like politics right now in U S soccer, like not U S soccer, the Federation, but in the United States soccer, it's like, there's just so many competing entities that it's difficult for us to accomplish our goals because there's not a whole lot of um, collaboration in terms of let's try to attack this together. And that's hard. You know, maybe we needed to go through this like storming period right now. Um, you know, there's just, I think this era of players within this like three, four years right now, they've had so many changes. They had the age group change. They had the introduction of DA from ECNL. Um, they have recruiting rule changes. And I think it's, if I'm a player in this era, it's so confusing. It's so difficult. I, I do not envy this three or four year period of kids that are coming out and trying to go to college right now, because I don't know how they would know who to listen to and what's right and what's not. Um, But in the end, you know, we have an amazing history of soccer in this country, particularly for women. And we have a really bright future. Um, I think we do have to figure out some ways to deal with our geography. Um, But in the end, you know, the culture of Americans in sport, like women were so much more accepted to play sport much more before some of these other countries. Um, that's something we should be really proud of and, and our ability to empower women. Aaron, do you want to uh, add any additional thoughts? No, I mean, I would agree about the, you know, the confusion of, of the, of the, potential student athletes or the young people coming through, especially on the, on the female side, because of the fractioning of how the different groups are. And, and again, they, they do, you know, you've got one city will have a DA team and an ECNL team and a U.S. national league team. And all their groups are saying, we're the one, we're the one that's going to take you. We're the one that's going to be the best development. And so they're like, how do I do this? And then you had clubs that were, hedging their bets and being in the DA and the ECNL. And then they decided, well, we're only going to do one now. And, and so uh, how do they decide that? And, you know, if we can at some point 
come together, but maybe it is because our country is so big and we have such a population that it is challenging. But, you know, I think one of the things that Jason, you and I talked about before was it's so amazing to be able the opportunity to watch soccer now and watch it on TV anytime you want. And that wasn't around when I was growing up and as passionate as I was about soccer, I would have loved to been able to watch soccer every single day. And, and we can watch every single university of Florida women's soccer game on TV. And that's, and not just them, but all the sec and the big 10 and the ACC. And I think that's so awesome for young girls and boys to be able to see that these opportunities are out there and what they can what they can strive to and I do I do love that part and that's not the developmental part structurally from soccer but it is in a kind of um, I don't know in a more metaphysical way of just being able to watch it and embrace it and and I, I love that part about soccer in the U.S. now. Aaron, you don't want to go back to the soccer made in Germany days? Yeah, I know. As much as I love Toby Charles, I love it. And I try to find it on YouTube all the time just because it's awesome to watch. But it was only once a week. <laughs> and you had to go on PBS to watch it once a week. And now, gosh, now you can just – heck, are you, all your games are probably still up on SEC oh, yeah. Network replay. I mean, you can go and watch all those. And, and I love – I love just going home at night um, and watching and during the season and just watching everybody play. Cause we play our games at four o'clock cause we don't have lights on, on Thursday or Friday. So I get to get home at seven o'clock or eight o'clock and I get to watch half of all the games that kick off at seven. And it's, it's so awesome. And again, I get to do that as a fan to, to kind of dis, disassociate myself with the job, but just because I love these people and I love watching them, succeed and, and grow and i think it's awesome to be able to do that becky if uh if folks want to follow along in your journey and uh, connect with you uh you mentioned about social media how can they do that well i think it's just pretty simple it's at becky burley <laughs> not too fancy here but i will tell you like you mentioned it earlier but sarah loudon is a great follow on social media for young coaches too um she's really um put herself in some amazing situations to grow as a coach. And um, I tell people that I just told our team that yesterday. I'm like, if you all aren't taking advantage of Sarah's experience and how she's networked, because we were talking about career stuff yesterday, I was like, you're missing the boat. Um, and I, I do feel like um, finding ways to use social media to your advantage in terms of educating yourself. Like I, I find that to be really fun. Um, I know that social media can be kind of a boring distraction too sometimes, but, um, but there's a lot of education to be found there too. What drives winning good follow too at WDW convo. <laughs> Newest book right here. <laughs> That's right. That's a good one. That's a really good one. <laughs> nice. Well, um, my thanks to both of you for coming on the, on the touchline podcast and, uh, wish you all the best. Um, yeah, I, this was a very enjoyable conversation and uh, Becky and Aaron keep doing uh, great things at, uh, at Florida and in Ohio. Thanks for having us. Thank, thanks. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, Becky. <sighs>
that I have been able to become connected to just by asking for their time to come on the show. And this is anything from coaches that are coaching at the grassroots level to high ranking national championship winning, in some cases, coaches. Everyone has been incredibly willing to give of their time and talk about the sport that we all love the most. My sincerest thanks to Becky Burley for coming on this episode of the On the Touchline podcast and for Aaron Rodgers for jumping on with me to co-host this episode. It's awesome to meet and interact with some of the heroes that I have in the game. And Becky, I would put you up there as someone whom I admire greatly. So keep doing what you're doing at Florida and know that you have a big fan in the Pittsburgh area. And welcome back on the podcast anytime you'd like. New episodes of the On the Touchline podcast come out every Wednesday. And some weeks you're going to get a bonus episode depending on my schedule. It would mean the world to me that if you listen to this show on Apple Podcast, go there now, leave a five-star rating and a brief review about the show. So you might be asking yourself, why does he ask me to do this in every show that he releases? It's simple. The more reviews, the more ratings that I have for this show, the more and more people find out about this podcast. The growth of this show in since the end of 2018 has been nothing short of phenomenal. And I can't thank you, the listeners, enough for doing that. So if you go to Apple Podcast and you leave a five-star rating in review, you could be like someone who I connected with on social media and we follow each other. Uh, his name's Eddie Felker and he is in Massachusetts. So Eddie, thank you for this review and share it with the audience. So the title is Something for All Coaches and Most Parents Slash Players. As a youth coach who only began to develop a love of soccer when his kid asked to play, I am always looking for resources to learn more about soccer and coaching in general. Jason's podcast provides great conversation between him and his guest. Each time I listen, I hear something new. Keep on podcasting. Eddie, my sincere thanks for your kind review. And it would mean the world to me that if you're listening to this and haven't left a review, to go there and do that now. It takes no more than two or three minutes to hit the five-star rating button and uh, put a few nice words in the comment section. All right, season two is off and running at a very strong pace. I have some fantastic guests that I'm going to share with you very, very soon. And I hope that you will enjoy those as much as you've enjoyed the first two episodes of season two of On the Touchline. Also be sharing some written content and uh, John Townsend is going to be taking the lead there and you'll be hearing from Aaron Rodgers and I on occasion as well. This has been the latest episode of the On the Touchline podcast. And until next time, I'm your host, Jason Broadwater. <laughs>